for me. I mean, not like, I'm not like saying I just did the best thing. Uh, if you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn with me this morning to Psalm chapter 3. We're continuing our series in the Psalms this summer, uh, taking them kind of one at a time. So we've looked at one and two already. Uh, which brings us to three. This is the first one uh, explicitly uh, attributed to David, and we'll talk a little bit about what that uh, means. Um, But yeah, this is God's word for us, his people, this morning. Uh, Let's read it together. This is Psalm 3. A psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask for his help to understand it. Would you pray with me? Father, again, we come to you this morning, grateful that you haven't left us on our own to figure out uh, what we should believe or how we should live as your people. But you're a God who speaks, and you've given us your word. And we pray now that you would send your Holy Spirit to us, that you would give us understanding, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds that you would speak words of truth and comfort and correction to us. And we pray all these things for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen. The title of this psalm reminds us or teaches us that Psalm 3 uh, was written during a particular episode in David's life. When he fled from Absalom, his son. We can read more about that episode in 2 Samuel 15. Uh, What happened there is Absalom, uh, who is David's son, uh, and ironically, Absalom means peace of the father. Uh, Absalom, who is David's son, betrayed him and stirred up opposition to him as the king in Israel stirred up opposition and tried to take over the kingdom, to seize it. And he had such support, he was so successful in this endeavor that he actually even recruited David's chief advisor. David realized what was happening just in time because Absalom had gathered an army that were coming to take over Jerusalem and David and his household fled Jerusalem. The king of Israel, along with his household, his his wives and children and his servants, had to flee from the palace, had to flee from the royal city because they were about to be killed in an uprising. 
And it actually tells us in 2 Samuel 15 that when David fled Jerusalem, he fled with his head covered. He was hiding just in case there were spies watching. Put yourself for just a second in David's shoes. Imagine the pain you would feel at being betrayed by your own son. Imagine that grief. Imagine the fear of just being a king who is about to be killed, who people are seeking his life to overthrow him in a, in a coup. There's so much pain and grief and fear, and you can just imagine what it would be like to be David. That's when he wrote Psalm 3. He wrote Psalm 3 in the middle of fleeing away from his son who was seeking to kill him and take over the kingdom. You can hear that pain in verses 1 and 2. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. David is saying, Lord, there are so many enemies. So many people are seeking my life and they're saying that you have abandoned me. This is a painful and a personal taunt against David. You see, David is the king that God chose. You can see how easy it would be for him to think that this episode, this attempted coup is actually because God has rejected him. Lord, how, how am I your king and now I'm running by night and hiding under a cloak because I might be killed by my own son? It would be so easy as you hear people say things like, there is no salvation for him in God. It would be so easy to believe it. I mean, if you were David, can't you imagine the, the doubt? Maybe God has rejected him for something he might not even be aware of. Have you ever experienced someone say something to you that is ideally suited to hurt you? Like, like something that preys on your deepest insecurity, your deepest fears. Maybe it was a, a comment about your appearance or your intelligence or your relationships or your children or your family or your spouse or your grades or your competence. These comments we hear just devastate us. That's where David is this morning. That's where David is in Psalm 3. He is fleeing. He's scared. He's grieving. He's in pain. And not only that, he's doubting. He's hearing a taunt. He is hearing people say things to him that are ideally suited to prey on his deepest fears in the moment. Friends, we're all like King David. We are all like King David in that we all have enemies. Enemies are those who pursue our harm and our destruction. And for us, that might be people who are pursuing our harm or our destruction. But the Bible is really clear that for God's people, our greatest enemies are not people, not other people. Our greatest enemies are sin 
and death and Satan. Those are the greatest enemies of God's people. So when we're thinking this morning about enemies, I just want to be really clear, most of what we're going to talk about is enemies like sin and death and Satan. We're not talking about, when we say enemies, we're not talking about people that you consider to be rivals, um, people that you're like trying to level up against at work. Those are not your enemies. Um, They're rivals, perhaps, they might even be people you don't like, but they're not your enemies. We're also not talking about people you disagree with. Those are not your enemies. We're not talking about people you don't like. Those are not the enemies that the Bible is talking about here. And we are certainly not talking about people that have different political persuasions when we think about our enemies. We are talking chiefly about sin and death and Satan, but also about people that are actively seeking and pursuing your harm or destruction. And what Psalm 3 is about is how we respond when we are overwhelmed by our enemies. Psalm 3 is about what is a faithful response when we are overwhelmed by our enemies, whether people or sin or death or Satan. And in Psalm 3, what I think we actually have is a beautiful picture of a faithful response to that feeling of being overwhelmed by our enemies. And we're going to see three things that David does that help us see what a faithful response might look like in a situation like this. David cries out, David remembers what is true, and David sleeps. We're going to look at each one of those in turn. David cries out. We see it in verse 4. He says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. David functionally there is crying out, Lord, help me. That's what he means when he's saying, I cried aloud to the Lord, Lord, help me. And what's amazing is that David also notes that God answers. And the fact that God answers means and demonstrates for us that it is the strength of God and not the apparent strength of our enemies that matters the most. It is God's strength, not the apparent strength of those that oppose us, even if it's things like sin or death or Satan. God is always stronger than our enemies. And we see that crying out also in verse 7. It says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. When David says to the Lord, Arise, when he cries out and asks God to arise, he is saying to God, Lord, get up and do something. And it's, it's interesting for us to note because I think sometimes we feel anxious about praying prayers like this. Like saying to the Lord, like, Lord, what are you doing? How is this happening? And yet the Bible shows us these are faithful words for God's people to pray to him. Lord, arise, do something, save me. Oh my God, David says there in verse 7. And he's basically saying, like, Lord, save me. I'm dying here. 
What are you going to do about it? And then he says something that we're really uncomfortable with. He says, you strike my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. David is saying, Lord, punch my enemies in the face. That's what he's saying here. Lord, strike my enemies, break their teeth. He is demonstrating for us that he doesn't just want refuge from his enemies. He wants victory over his enemies. And that is what he is crying out for God to do. Not just to hide him and protect him from the enemies, but to overthrow the enemies and restore the world to the way it was meant to be. For David, that meant that he is again in Jerusalem reigning over the kingdom of Israel. And so friends, I want to think for a minute about what this means for us as we think about one of our chief enemies, that enemy being sin. The Bible describes sin as an enemy, and we see it all the way back in Genesis chapter 4 when sin has just entered into the world. It says that sin is crouching at the door for us. Sin is seeking our destruction and our Sin is one of our chief enemies. So what does that mean as we think about our persistent sin struggles? How does David crying out to God help us think about what it means for us to respond faithfully when we seem overwhelmed by our sin? Or when there are particular sins that just seem to constantly get victory over us and we're not even sure how to walk in faithfulness anymore. We're not even sure if God is with us because we're so struggling with these particular sins and temptations. And you can fill in the blank on what it could be. It could be something like pornography. It could be something like anger. It could be something like a constant anxiety or need for control. These persistent sin struggles. I think some of what we see as David cries out is that first of all, we have to realize that we cannot overcome our sin struggles in our own power. You see that David acknowledges that here when he cries out like, Lord, you are the one who has to do this. He answered me from his holy hill. You are the one who strike all my enemies on the cheek. Save me, Lord. It is ultimately God who delivers us out of our sin struggles. It's not something that we do just on our own. In other words, it's not just about getting better habits as we think about sin. It is about crying out to the Lord and asking him in part to deliver us from our sins. And so friends, I would encourage you as you think about whatever these sin struggles are in your life, to not just think there's something you're going to overcome by the force of your own will. Understand that you must, like David, cry out to the Lord for help. But there's something else I think we see as we think about David crying out. And that is that the goal of struggling against our enemy of sin is not just refuge, but victory. We want to have not just refuge from our sin, we want to have victory over our sin. In other words, one of the things that the Bible is showing us here is that the gospel is not offering us a sin management program. 
It's not offering us a way to go from sinning six times a day to sinning two times a day, and we're going to call that good enough. The Bible is showing us that God is changing our hearts. When David says and cries out to the Lord, Lord, save me, he is saying, Lord, fix it. Fix this situation. And when we look at sin and the sin that has entangled our hearts and distorted our loves, what we are asking the Lord to do is to change our hearts so that we are the kind of people who don't just have bad habits, but we are the kind of people who love what is good. The goal is not just to get better at bad behavior. The goal is to be the kind of person who loves what is good and pursues what is righteous. That is what it looks like as we think about crying out to the Lord against our overwhelming enemies, which might be for us a persistent sin struggle. The second thing that David does in this passage is remember what is true. So David cries out to the Lord when he's overwhelmed by his enemies, but he also remembers what is true. You see it in verse 3. He remembers aloud that God is his shield. God is his protector. Not only that, he is his glory and what he says is the lifter of my head. Remember as David flees Jerusalem because of Absalom's attempted coup, he is fleeing with his head covered and hiding. You can almost picture him crouching as he's running out of the city. And David here is thinking with confidence on a future return to Jerusalem where his head will be held high. Where his head will no longer be crouching and covered, but the Lord will lift his head. Because of what God does, he will return to Jerusalem in triumph, even if he can't see how at this very moment. He is clinging to the promise of God in the midst of being overwhelmed by his enemies. In verse 8, David says this. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. In other words, what David is saying there is that salvation is not just something God makes possible for his people. Salvation is something God does for his people. And that's the content there of David's prayer in verse 8. He's saying, Lord, only you can do this. Only you can do it, so do it. Put your blessing on your people again. Friends, remember the context of Psalm 3. Remember what's going on in David's life as he writes these words. David is praying for salvation from his own son. When David says, strike my enemies on the cheek, break the teeth of the wicked, he is praying that about his own wicked son. And friends, as we think about salvation as something that God does, one of the things we must realize is that what David prays For his wicked son, God does to his righteous son. 
You see, friends, we on our own are all enemies of God. We all have the heart of Absalom. We want to usurp the place of our father and be in charge. That's why Satan's temptation to Adam and Eve in the garden is you will be like God. We all want to be our own God. But Jesus, who is God's righteous son, dies the death on the cross that Absalom deserves. He was stricken by God. He was judged fully by God. So that us sinful and rebellious children can be welcomed as righteous and beloved. And friends, in Christ, that is where we stay. Being righteous and beloved by God is not a status that we move into and out of depending on our behavior. So again, think about as you are overwhelmed by even your sin, it is important to realize we struggle against persistent sin in our life, not as those who are seeking to avoid God's judgment, but as those who are in Christ, righteous and beloved. When you sin, when you do the sin you swore you wouldn't do and you do it again, you are still in Christ, righteous and beloved. Friends, that'll get you out of bed in the morning. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It is the fact that he has loved us in Jesus and continues to love us in Jesus and promises to love us forever in Jesus that empowers us to struggle against sin in our lives. Not because we are trying to earn righteousness or earn relationship or earn his favor. When we are overwhelmed by our enemies, when we are overwhelmed by sin, we do that as people who are beloved by their heavenly Father in Christ. We fight against sin as those who are loved. And friends, that's what salvation is. That is what Jesus does for us. And when that sinks into our bones, what we find is a profound confidence in the face of our unbeatable enemies. And friends, that brings us to verses 5 and 6. It's fascinating that in the middle of this passage, in the middle of being overwhelmed by God's enemies, David takes a nap. David sleeps in the middle. And I think it's no accident that it's right in the middle because I actually think this could be the central point of Psalm 3. Verse 5 says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. David slept, overwhelmed and surrounded. He slept, not afraid of those enemies around him. So I actually just want to spend a few moments here at the end of the sermon thinking about sleep. And just as a preview of coming attractions, Psalm 4 ends with some more thoughts about sleep, so there will be more thoughts about sleep coming next week. Let's think about sleep. Four things, briefly, about sleep. Psalm 121, verse 4, reminds us, or tells us, 
that sleep teaches us that we are not God. Just full stop. Sleep teaches us, the fact that we need to sleep teaches us that we are not God. We are weak and we are finite. We have limits. It's sobering to think that a third of your life you are unconscious and completely vulnerable. You are not God. God is the one who doesn't sleep, and God is the one who promises to keep and watch his people when they sleep. Here's the second thing. Psalm 127, verse 2, which was our call to worship this morning, it says that sleep is a gift that God gives to those he loves. Sleep is a gift God gives to sustain his people. And friends, what that means for us is that our weakness, our vulnerability, our finitude is not a problem for God. Like, it's not a problem. God's not disappointed that our lives are one-third less productive than they might otherwise be because we could do so much more if we didn't have to sleep. God makes provision for our limits. God makes provision for our weakness and our vulnerability. He gives his beloved sleep. And friends, it is so instructive to think about the fact that when we are busy and when we are overwhelmed and when we are stressed out, the first thing often to go is sleep. We stay up late working. We try to catch up. And I'm the worst at this. Like, this isn't like me coming down from the mountain with a word from God for you because, uh, you know, I'm convicted of your sin. I do this all the time. I need to be reminded of this. Friends, God doesn't need me to be more productive. God doesn't need you to be more productive because your productivity is not the thing that is truest about you. His love for you in Jesus says he gives his beloved sleep. You can accomplish a limited amount in your life and in your day. And he gives you sleep because he doesn't expect you to be productive 24 hours a day. I read a few years ago an interview with the CEO of Netflix, uh, Reed Hastings. And Reed uh, was asked uh, what he thought about uh, emerging competitors, which were like HBO Max, Amazon Prime Video, Hulu. Uh, and, and he said, hey, are you worried about the competition? And Reed Hastings said, no, because we don't really consider other streaming services to be our chief competitor. Our chief competitor is human sleep. It's pretty instructive, right? Netflix wants to keep you up all night. And the self-medicating, the numbing of just watching show after show after show is something you should think about. For God gives his beloved sleep. A college pastor friend of mine one time told me that Netflix was the most abused drug on the college campus. Self-medicating, numbing against the need to feel productive and to define yourself all the time competing with sleep. Here's the third thing. Have you ever felt like you just, you're not sure if you're even going to make it through the night? Like in a hard season of feeling overwhelmed or feeling grief or just difficult things happening in your life, have you ever just wondered if like you're even going to survive through the night? I know I've felt that. 
It's just like, how am I even going to get through another night? Overwhelmed by sin and its effects in our lives. But one of the things I think Psalm 3 demonstrates for us is that sleep demonstrates our confidence in God. And waking up demonstrates God's faithfulness to us. We sleep showing our confidence in God. God wakes us up, demonstrating his faithfulness to us. In Psalm 3, David's sleep is not the sleep of exhaustion, of just being at the end of his rope. This is a sleep of profound confidence. And in that light, friends, sleep is an act of faith, of profound faith that God will keep us and God will watch us and God can govern the world without our help for eight hours a day. The final thing that I think the Bible teaches us about sleep that we're going to look at this morning. In 1 Corinthians 15, sleep is described as our final enemy, not sleep. Sleep is not our enemy. Death is described as our final enemy. And yet, death itself has been overcome in Christ. Because Christ didn't just take the death that Absalom deserved on the cross. Christ rose in victory over the grave. Christ has defeated not only sin, Christ has also in his resurrection defeated death. And because of that, in Christ, for Christians, for God's people, death, the New Testament tells us, is just sleep. You see it in 1 Corinthians 15, 18. You see it also in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14. And so I think in light of what Jesus has done, verse 5 actually points us to a profound reality. I lay down and slept, but I woke again. For the Lord sustained me. Friends, if death is but sleep in Christ, verse 5 points us to the truth of our resurrection. That though we die, though we lay down and sleep, God sustains us and we will wake up again to live in a world made new with perfect bodies forever and ever. As one pastor put it, in Christ, I've said this before, I'll say it again, in Christ, your long-term worst-case scenario is resurrection and eternal life. That's it. That is your worst-case scenario. That is what gives us confidence to face our enemies in this life. But what might that look like? What might it look like to have confidence like that even in the face of suffering and sickness and death? Uh, My grandfather died 10 years ago. And he was such a patient and gentle and quiet man. This is my dad's dad. I've told you some stories about my mom's dad before. Uh, He had an amazing life. He fought in World War II. He was an artillery uh, officer. Uh, in World War II. Um, He had just amazing stories about that. Uh, He worked for uh, Piedmont Airlines. Uh, He gave Roy Williams, uh, who would later be uh, the UNC basketball coach, his first job as a baggage handler uh, with Piedmont Airlines. Uh, Just amazing stuff. I never heard my grandfather talk about himself, though. 
He was just such a humble and quiet man. Loved Jesus, was an elder in the church for years and years and years. And in his last weeks of life, as it became apparent that he was sick in a way he would not recover from, he sat in the hospital, of all things, cracking jokes with a profound sense of humor. He called my dad into the room one day with a a wry smile, and he goes, Tim, there's a lot of men at the church that have had their eye on your mom for years. He's like, I'm going to need you to watch out for her. And my dad was like, what? He's like, you'll get it. He's just cracking jokes. He he called my grandmother in, uh, whose name was Marge. And he goes, Marge, I, I guess I'm going to see Jesus. She said, yes, Jack, I think that's right. He says, well, I really am going to miss you. Shoot, I ought to take you with me. (laughs) This was a man who knew he had days to live. And friends, death is never beautiful because death is our enemy. But my grandfather, as I think more and more about his last days, he demonstrated a profound confidence in the truth of the gospel. He looked at death full on and laughed. And he did that not because he was a great guy. He did it not because he was amazing, but he did that because he knew he had a great Savior. And that in Christ, his long-term worst-case scenario was resurrection and eternal life. It's good news. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the words of Psalm 3. Lord, we thank you that though we will all be overwhelmed by enemies at some point, you have here given us a picture of what it looks like to respond faithfully. Lord, teach us to cry out to you in our sin. Teach us to seek victory over our sin, not just getting better at it. Lord, remind us often of what is most true. Remind us that you are our shield and remind us that you are the one who saves. You don't just start us out and we finish it on our own. And Father, we pray that you would give us the confidence in understanding the truth of the gospel in such a way that we can sleep, that we can rest knowing that our circumstances are not the truest thing about us, but your love for us in Christ is. And Father, we pray even this morning, as we come to the table, that you would be at work in us, that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose to anchor us in the truth of Christ's work on our behalf. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.